MSW Media. It's finally here. So what's going to happen at the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. I'm Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend, Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I bring in Patty, I'd like to thank our patrons who brought us this episode. With special thanks to Andrew Donnelly, James Frohmeyer, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie and Izzy Gordon, Patrick, Angela Jackson, Ari Lamstein, Dan Maruska, Shana Wachinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com. Just click the support link at the top of the page. Well, Patty, I have to say, um, you, you know, we now are finally starting this impeachment process. I was disappointed that it didn't get started earlier. I would have liked this to happen, at, you know, ASAP after the attack. And I also, you know, it seems like the winds are starting to blow uh, against uh, Trump being convicted, given what we're seeing from Senate Republicans. And do you attribute that to the delay, the sort of, uh, you know, the process in which this is unfolding, that there is pushback against convicting him? I think it's it's due to two things. The first one I we saw reported uh, in Politico Playbook yesterday is Republican senators are getting flooded with calls from constituents and from donors who are pushing them, wondering why they aren't defending Donald Trump more. And I think um, I think that that is having an impact because ultimately these are politicians and their focus is on their own interests uh, for better or for worse. I mean, that's not how we would like it to be, but that's who and what they are. And so I think that's a big part of it. And I also think that a lot of the energy and fervor from this in the early days has died down. In other words, in the first days after the attack, senators were in a state of shock, I think. I mean, some of them actually had a fear for their lives. They were in hiding. Um, There was a mob that wanted to attack and kill uh, some of their own, and certainly the the then vice president, Mike Pence, uh, and so forth. And I think there was this sense that something had to be done. The Senate had to make a stand. This was a historical moment, so on and so forth. And I think now that Joe Biden is president and they can see that there's political wrangling with Democrats, they can get they're kind of reoriented and refocused on the politics of the whole thing. And I think, you know, I've had some traumatic moments in my life, although never had an armed mob uh, come at me. I've had other threats, uh, but never, never quite that one. But nonetheless, after a traumatic event, after a period of time, you start getting back into your routine in your life. And I do think that that's an element of this as well. Yeah, but I mean, you know, for so many of us and to your point about, you know, legislators who are getting phone calls from donors and constituents, that's it, it is frustrating. I mean that we are at this point that we have so many Republicans who still believe that the that the election was rigged or unfair, you know, that this lie continues to be per- perpetuated is frustrating. And it's very hard to, I think, for many of us, as you can see with, from the reaction in your thread to today's podcast, people want justice. And, and I've, you know, commented on that and called for it. And I think every single podcast that I can remember now. <laughs> That is what people are thirsty for. Um, I am skeptical as to whether or not that will happen here. Not, you know, not because the cause isn't just the case isn't correct. I think that if you had a secret ballot, you might have 100 senators uh, voting uh, to to convict. But I think I just I think that I, I've I've learned over 
the Trump presidency not to count on Republicans to do anything uh, yes. contrary to Donald Trump. So I, I think you're going to have some votes to convict more than last time. But, you know, less than 10 is what it looks like to me. You know, you're not going to have the 17 you need. You know, Renato, I, I've been thinking about this as we were getting ready today for the podcast. You know, I started covering Springfield uh, as a broadcaster in 2015, but have been going down there for over a decade as an advocate. And, you know, it always struck me, uh, you know, and I, I tried to be very objective in the sense that am I just feeling this way because I'm a liberal where, you know, the Republicans would be very dismissive just uh, because a Democrat brought a bill or because it was coming from a, whatever that was. Um, and But to see it manifested and so uh, at the core of who Republicans are, are, to completely be disconnected from reality and what happened on January 6th, what has happened for four years, is, is really uh, upsetting to me and hard to uh, sort of integrate into my <laughs> – into my consciousness, I still I have, I'm so resistant to the fact that these people do not care about justice, and you know they cling to the Bible and to the Constitution in ways that aren't reflected in their behavior. Yeah, and, and by the way, this, by Springfield, Patty's referring to in our state, the capital is Springfield. That's where our state government yes is seated. <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. I've long thought that there's a difference between. A lot of state and local Republicans, not all, but but at least some or a good portion of them. And what we've been seeing happening at the federal level under Trump. But, you know, one thing that is disheartening for me, Patty, is to see these polls showing that the vast majority of Republicans do not believe that the election was legitimate, really believe the election was stolen and this and that. And of course, they were convinced by a lot of lies coming out of Donald Trump and many other Republicans. It really was the entire Republican leadership all of their entire ecosystem of various media outlets. And, you know, that is a topic we're going to be dealing with, I think, in the weeks ahead. I know at least one of our patrons has been asking me to do something about this sort of propaganda and, you know, all QAnon and all these people who are caught up in these conspiracy theories. And that is definitely on my mind. I just felt impeachment was a more timely topic for this week. Uh, given that the articles of impeachment were formally sent over just the other day. Um, but I think that we will be dealing with that for quite some time to come. It was uh, interesting to watch the ceremony, essentially, of bringing the of walking over the articles of, of impeachment to see our capital, that path where we saw rioters and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, sort of putting, you know, the Trump flag on statues and you know, obviously mobs taking selfies of themselves and just celebrating the fact that they were trying to overthrow the government. And I, I learned that the articles of impeachment, that they started drafting them while they were hiding from those insurrectionists. It was fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's crazy to think that as they're walking the articles of impeachment, that's like a crime scene, right? That's, that's literally where this crime took place. There are many people who've been charged uh, and are, you know, uh, in the process of 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 dealing with federal charges of, due to this conduct. And, you know, this is the last, you know, I think, chapter in the least this this part of the story talking about the specific attack at the Capitol. Um, and, you know, to me, I have to say it's interesting, although I felt like this last week. This last weekend, I should say, we learned some other important details. I mean, I was shocked to hear, Patty, that Trump was going to was trying to fire the the then acting attorney general. He was going to fire everybody in leadership who until and promote up uh, assistant attorney general who was going to who had sort of pledged to use the Justice Department to try to force Georgia over to overturn its results. I mean, that's crazy. It was only thwarted because the DOJ officials said they would resign on Moss, essentially, if, if Trump did that. But, that, you know, the, I think there's more shoes left to drop in terms of the Trump uh, insanity. Oh, sorry about that. Um, I, I'm sorry. It's, we can go back. Insanity is exactly right. You know, we've had this sustained level of outrage for the last four years. And every single thing that comes up, you know, we see that story that he wanted to uh, 
really d- dismantle the DOJ in order to shape it to his will. And we're still like, oh, yeah, that happened, too. It's just so surreal. Yeah, it is. It is. And, you know, we're seeing a sense of normalcy now in the White House where the biggest story of the day is that the White House dogs have arrived or, you know, that the, <laughs> the yes. president's favorite ice cream flavor is chocolate chip. Uh, I really think he could do better. <laughs> Uh, than chocolate chip. Uh, uh, personally, I'm oh, a chocolate. I'm a chocolate peanut butter guy myself. Okay, all right. Um, but in any event, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I I think you know it is interesting because I think Republicans are eager to eager to wallpaper past this, and I do think from a political perspective, it looks like they might be able to. Um, but I am I'm worried about the long term impact in the country. And, you know, it's sort of to me, it's like, you know, if you have a, a get your car in a wreck and you find a way to repair the cosmetic damage so you can keep driving it. But it doesn't change the fact that you have all this internal damage from that car wreck. And and that's what concerns me. Interesting. That's a great way to put it, Renato. I, I've I've had that car. <laughs> we, we, you just don't want to buy that car, right? As you have people are trying to use, you know, Carfax for services to prevent themselves from being in that situation. But I think what we're being sold uh, by Republicans is they're trying to put a, a new paint job on not just their party, but on our system of government and say, you know, everything's fine here. There's nothing to see here. And they're caught up. I mean, if you read their media and their various outlets, it's all they're all caught up in cancel culture or, you know, mad at Biden for something or another. And they've just really lost the point. And I don't miss the point. I really don't know what can be done to create a reckoning uh, there and, and really deal with uh, the perversion of our government by Trump. And I think for all of us who are really disturbed by his presidency, this ending is deeply unsatisfying. It really is. Do not let them scratch the VIN numbers off, Renato. Yeah, that that's going to be our recourse when uh, <laughs> when we need to trade this thing back in or get our money back with our limit with the lemon law or something. Well, look, what we will have. I mean, the next the, the next chapter coming up of holding Trump accountable is, of course, the second impeachment trial. And we're focusing on that today uh, for a couple of reasons. One is literally the other day, as we just talked about, uh, the article of impeachment was walked over to the Senate. The process is starting now in the Senate uh, for that second impeachment trial. And we also are just fortunate to have uh, someone join us who really has an important role uh, in in history, really, as a counsel who was one of the uh, sort of uh, chief lawyers behind the House's uh, House of Representatives' first impeachment of Donald Trump, and that's Daniel Goldman. And you, I think a lot of you know Daniel Goldman. If you watched the first impeachment, you watched him question witnesses uh, on behalf of the uh, committee. Uh, you probably also saw him literally in the floor in Congress and so forth uh, there for that um, first impeachment trial in the Senate and so on. Uh, but, you know, he is he's a former federal prosecutor. He was a prosecutor in SDNY in the Southern District of New York, um, you know, also uh, had been an, an analyst, uh, MSNBC analyst for a brief period of time. But I think is best known for rightfully so for his role in that impeachment. And I think uh, will provide us with a lot of insight uh, as a person who's already very recently been through an impeachment trial of Donald Trump uh, into uh, this upcoming impeachment trial of Donald Trump. So let's bring in Daniel Goldman. Welcome to the podcast, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Renato. It's great to be here. Well, it's a real treat having you on. It's rare that we have people on the podcast who played a role in a historical event. And I think your perspective on this upcoming historical event, I think the the first time we've had a second impeachment of uh, of of a, in this case, now a former president, um, is is going to be really insightful. And I think maybe as a starting point, you know, one thing that you you also offer is you are, of course, a federal prosecutor. You've tried a lot of cases in in, uh, in normal criminal cases. Can you help us understand 
as a starting point, help everybody understand the difference between a criminal trial and what we see in the United States Senate in terms of an impeachment trial? Well, in some ways, I think it's probably uh, better to discuss what is similar than what is different because <laughs> there are very few similarities. Um, the 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 one the, the the best similarity I would or the most the strongest similarity I would point to is sort of the due process rights for the defendant, um, and I think that the impeachment process tries to maintain a lot of the legal due process rights that you would have for an, an accused defendant. Um, you know, the the president or the former president now will have an opportunity to respond to the allegations, to rebut the allegations, uh, potentially to offer evidence in, in, in response uh, to those allegations. And that's a, a very important part of the process. And that's why, um, you know, the, the Senate trial will be different than the impeachment investigation. And the impeachment investigations historically have been really varied uh, in the House and how the fact-finding efforts um, were accomplished uh, prior to the House impeaching. But for the most part, at least in recent history, and I think that will be the case for the second uh, Senate trial for Donald Trump, the, the sort of nuts and bolts of the Senate trial remains the same. But short of that, um, there, the differences are are immense. Um, you you don't have a an impartial jury of your peers. Uh, you have an incredibly partial and jury. Um, there are no concerns. Uh, there are no material or effective concerns about conflicts of interest um, because you know senators invariably um, have conflicts of interest and have vested interests in the outcome one way or the other I, I think at the heart you know it really is a political process and therefore it's very different than the apolitical process that you and i find in in federal court or, or state court or any court in the country so it's it's hard to sort of um quantify all of the various differences, but I think that, that crucially, um, it, it, those are the differences that it is, um, it's a political animal, and that comes with all of the baggage that we see. Yeah, I think that's an important point and one that I wanted to get across. I'm glad you explained that because people talk about the trial as if it's a, tr a trial in a courtroom. And people use analogies to the sort of trials that you and I have done in courtrooms. And, and I think there are some resemblances, but, but they are, they are very few. There's some extremely important differences, as you point out. I would add one thing, Renato, that, you know, the other thing that's so different is, and, and we'll see it again, but we saw it last time when Chief Justice Roberts presided, you know, the, the presiding judge in a, a Senate trial is not the type of judge that you or I are used to. And it, ultimately, it's the decisions are generally made by Senate vote. Um, there are very few decisions for the presiding officer to make. Um, Chief Justice Roberts did remarkably little um, for someone who had to sit there for hours and hours and hours. Um, and because ultimately decisions about witnesses decisions about um, relevance or timing or any of that stuff were all made by the senators themselves, who are also, of course, the jurors. So, you know, the, the notion that Patrick Leahy will be the presiding officer and people are concerned, oh, that we have an impartial judge, it, we don't really, because there are almost no decisions that the presiding officer makes during the course of a Senate trial. Yeah, that's really important, uh, and uh, one that I was just about to turn to. In my mind, senators here are not just jurors, but they're judges at the same time. And, you know, in a regular criminal trial, jurors have remarkably little power. I mean, they sit there, they come in and out when they're told, they're listening passively uh, to the evidence, they're taking notes and so forth, but they're basically following instructions that, uh, that are given to them by the judge, 
Uh, and the judge throughout the trial is the one making decisions about which witnesses can or cannot testify or evidence can be entered into evidence or things of that nature. Um, you know, the, the big decisions that are made and also the judge will be the one ultimately who will decide what instructions to give the jury so that they can, you know, render a verdict after the trial. Whereas here, as you point out, the, 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 what we think of as jurors, the senators are really just the decision makers controlling the flow of the trial. And in the case of the first impeachment that you were part of, uh, they making a decision about whether or not to hear from witnesses. That's right. And I think that'll happen again, by the way. I think uh, my my guess is it'll be a very similar structure to what occurred last time. Well, you know, one thing about that structure that puzzles me is, you know, I saw, for example, uh, uh, then-Majority Leader McConnell's announcement saying, you know, Senate trials have always taken many days and listed out the days that they take. And, of course, the actual amount of time spent in the well of the Senate, you know, where there was, was argument and discussion and so forth, was less than the amount of time he counted. Does he count, essentially, Does do, for the do, do they consider the trial uh, in the Senate to include all of the briefs that are filed beforehand by the by the two sides? I, I don't think they are this time. I, I don't know. Technically, uh, I'm, I'm sure it depends on who's what point they're trying to make. And so therefore, yeah. uh, how much they can can, you know, how much they can sort of drum up to support them themselves. Certainly this time around. Now we have we're in a, a two week um, period where the the House and the former president will file their briefs before the trial begins. I, I don't think anyone thinks that this is the the part of the trial. You know, what's interesting is what happened last time and and um, is initially McConnell, you know, was setting an inc- incredibly uh, short schedule and wanted to provide each party to have the full 24 hours of time to present that Bill Clinton, the Clinton trial had. Um, and But he wanted to do that for each side to have two days. I don't know if you remember that, which, which was absurd. It would be a 12-hour day that would go, starts at one o'clock at the time because Chief Justice Roberts had, had Supreme Court business in the morning. It wasn't going to end with breaks until three in the morning. But that was his way of speeding it up, um, you know, I, and ultimately that that didn't bear out. But then, of course, when on a Sunday afternoon, when John Bolton, um, when The New York Times uh, revealed the, the comments that John Bolton made in his uh, manuscript of his book about Ukraine, and there was a gr- an immediate groundswell of support to have Bolton as a witness, because, as you'll recall, he refused to come into the House uh, then all of a sudden he was very happy to sort of push everything back. <laughs> and, you know, there were there was one day where I think they met for an hour or something to, to do something very perfunctory. He just was trying to extend the time so that he could whip his caucus to uh, vote against uh, having witnesses. So, you, you know, I don't know technically how many days it was or how many days they are planning now. I think the real key is a combination of how much time to does each side have to present their case, whether there will be witnesses and, you know, how long they'll go each day uh, to fit in all that presentation time? You know, this this relates to a question that one of our listeners had. Uh, Patty, uh, do you have that for us? I do. You know, uh, one listener says that, uh, Daniel, you've mentioned before that the Democrats and Republicans want to get through the process quickly and therefore there will be no witnesses at the trial. Is that your assessment or and why is there a need for speed? That's that is my assessment, um, you know, and I, I, I think it was supported by um, Chuck Schumer's comment to Rachel Maddow that, you know, we don't I think he sort of said, well, the, the decision on witnesses will have to be decided later. But we don't really need witnesses because we were all the witnesses. The American people were the witnesses. The senators were the witnesses. And the reason I say that is. Having witnesses opens a can of worms for the Senate, um, which is to say, you know, how do you decide how many witnesses you don't unlike in the House where 
we had done a, a three-month investigation and we had a number of witnesses and a number of witnesses refused to come, we had more or less kind of exhausted the universe of witnesses that would be able to provide uh, really relevant information. Either we had them in or they refused to come in. In this situation, you would just be beginning and where to begin and how to identify who the witnesses are. And invariably, as you know, Renato knows from, from practice, if you then interview one witness, then they say, oh, and then I had a conversation with another person who was not on your radar, and then you got to track that down. It, it will then just become an investigative effort, and there is no, there will be no natural ending to it. And on the flip side, the president, former president, would also be able to get witnesses and would want witnesses. And this would just delay the trial for weeks and weeks and weeks. And so I think just my, my view is not that there should not be witnesses, because as a, a pro former prosecutor, I always think there should be witnesses. I think you should under have you should get to the bottom of something before you have to rule on it or judge upon it. But I think just practically and pragmatically speaking, it's it is will delay things too much. It will open a whole can of worms and. Neither side wants this to occupy so much time. The Republicans don't want to dwell on Donald Trump's insurrection and their role in aiding him. And the Democrats don't want to take up, you know, Biden's first several months with uh, an impeachment trial of now the former president. Uh, it sucks all the oxygen out of Washington, D.C. It limits the time to focus on the critical legislative and other crises that are there. Um, and so you have both sides for their own reasons who really don't want this to go on. And I think they will probably pragmatically realize that having witnesses opens a can of worms that has no natural ending. And so it will then just become very arbitrary how to stop it. And it will feel very unfulfilling to have witnesses so that therefore the easiest solution for all of them is not to have witnesses. Yeah, it's interesting. You could imagine having a very expansive trial in this case, because um, as I, I think I, well, I argued in USA Today this morning, you know, if you look at the article of impeachment, uh, it's actually quite broad in terms of indicating that the attack in the Capitol didn't happen. It wasn't started on January 6th, that it was part of a long process by which Trump was trying to undermine the election. If you take that seriously, there's all sorts of witnesses from the Georgia Secretary of State to, um, you know, Steve Engel, the for former head of the OLC and uh, who allegedly uh, told Trump they'd all resign if he got rid of the, the acting attorney general and all sorts of other things that you would put on. That could take quite some time. And, and, your, and your point is just that as a practical matter, politically, no, we shouldn't expect any of that to happen. Right. And look, I think you will see a lot of evidence of the two months between November 3rd and January 6th. And in fact, I think there'll be evidence prior to November 3rd because Donald Trump was planting the seed long before the election. But that evidence will be in the way of tweets and other statements, um, parlor comments, you know, blog, Internet stuff. You'll see a lot of of video and audio or, uh, you know, excerpts from tweets, et cetera. Um, and so the, the, um, you'll, that, that evidence will be there as part of the presentation. It just won't be in the form of witnesses. What I would want mostly, though, from an investigative standpoint, are witnesses related to what Donald Trump knew about the very open and notorious plans of his supporters to storm the Capitol that day uh, that that existed in on Parler and elsewhere prior to January 6th. Because, look, I think if you if you had a recording, for example, of Donald Trump saying, uh, all right, we're going to have this rally on January 6th. I know everybody's going to, you know, I know there are plans for them to storm the Capitol and try to stop Congress's certification of the Electoral College. So I'm going to give a speech and whip him into a frenzy and send them on their way. It would be almost impossible for anyone, Republican or Democrat, to not convict Donald Trump. 
And that to me is, it doesn't, it doesn't absolve him of responsibility. If you don't have that, you give Republicans a lot of credit there, but I'm just teasing, (laughs) but keep keep going. I'm sorry. I didn't mean Uh, it. You know, but, but that is going to be, I think what they're going, the defense is going to fall back on, which is, you know, he said peacefully at the rally, he didn't know about the plans to storm the Capitol. If he did, he would not have said that. He certainly does not condone violence, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, but if you had a Mark Meadows or a Dan Scavino, the digital media director who's well-versed in the sort of uh, conservative uh, online ecosphere, I think those witnesses would be able to uh, reveal a lot about what Donald Trump knew in advance of that. And we just don't have that right now. That is a gap, I think. But you can fill that gap, Renato, with uh, discussing in particular what he didn't do after the mob started raiding and and uh, storming the Capitol. And that is to try to squash the mob, squash the insurrection, issue a very strong statement that he does not believe in it, that they must be peaceful, this is unacceptable, and then also to make sure that they send in the National Guard to restore order. He didn't do any of that. And so that's actually very powerful evidence, circumstantial evidence, but very powerful evidence of what his state of mind is. You know, well, before we move on, I know our listeners really, you can tell by the questions, they contemplate this as a regular trial. So we have a question just about the nuts and bolts of obtaining evidence. Uh, Patty, can you ask that one? Yes. uh, Folks want to know if the Senate has subpoena power to compel testimony and evidence could they get phone records do democrats need the republicans to utilize these subpoena powers there the senate does have subpoena power um as part of the impeachment trial they would have to vote on the subpoenas and they you only need a majority of the votes um I am assuming that and and I don't think this has been hashed out but I'm assuming a 50-50, well, I shouldn't assume. I don't know. It's interesting because it's broken down 50-50 now. Um, you know, will, I mean, this is where Patrick Leahy as the presiding officer may actually have a role, which is, does he get an extra vote? Or does Kamala Harris get a vote? This is an open question. But broadly speaking, you need you need a majority to vote on a subpoena. And they can subpoena anything that the Senate broadly has authority to subpoena, which is a lot. They could subpoena phone records. They could subpoena documents. They could subpoena witnesses. They could subpoena all of this stuff. But again, then we go back to the issue that these things are not produced by the recipient of the subpoena You know, the next day. Um, they will take some time. They will have to be evaluated. And you know, then you're, then you're talking about, okay, we need to evaluate it. Now, what else do we need to find? Well, when we did this in the House and, and we did get phone records, you know, then you have to start looking and go back to some of the phone companies for uh, subscriber information about numbers that appear very frequently around important events. And who do those who are those phone numbers belong to? So, again, it's from an investigative standpoint, they could do all that. But it would take a very long time. Yeah. And, and, and I think part of part of this is, you know, it seemed to me that from our discussion a moment ago, what you're contemplating is having a very narrow trial uh, focused on incitement on the January 6th attack without providing as much context. So one one thing that I I mean, as you, as you point out, it would be through, you know, there'd be parlor messages and things like that. But in other words, you know, not having a panoply of witnesses talking about the run up to this or, you know, the months of 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 a campaign that Trump uh, put on. Now, of course, everyone knows that to an extent the senators have had their eyes open and have watched what's gone on on television and so forth. But you could imagine in a regular courtroom, right, if this was a jury of random people off the street, you would you would introduce and set the stage by talking about you know, what Trump said and did after his loss and the whole campaign for months going forward. And you probably put up various Republican officials and, you know, people in the Justice Department and people who are around him and so forth to try to talk about how this fit into something broader. 
That, that's right. I, I think, look, I, I guess the only thing I would quibble with is I'm not sure it is actually going to be narrowly focused on the articles themselves, because I think that context is very important. Um, the context of the president's, uh, the former president's efforts to overturn the election, you know, when uh, in middle mid December, you know, as the Wall Street Journal reported, where he was, you know, trying to um, drum up other legal avenues to pursue in the courts, and his efforts to, or his consideration of going forward with the sort of coup at DOJ and have them have DOJ write a letter to the Georgia legislature saying that, um, you know, we're, we're, the DOJ is looking into irregularities in voting. I, I think all of that is very important context. In, in addition, the context of him saying, we're going to have a rally on January 6th, and it's going to be wild, and Twitter, and all of that mm -hmm. stuff. That is very important background and contextual information to sort of set the stage for it. So I'm not sure it's just going to be narrowly focused on January 6th. Um, I just think that the types of information that we are going to see is not going to be in the form of testimony that we're used to. It's just going to be in the form of public statements. And frankly, Renato, it's going to be in the form of quotes from articles, right? Because the journalists and the newspapers and the reporters are the ones who are revealing this information. So what I would expect and if from the from the president, the former Donald Trump's defense is to say, we don't, there's, there's no, and you know, they'll try to use the courtroom language and the courtroom notions that we're used to, which is, there's no te un testimony under oath saying any of this stuff. This is all just reporting, anonymous reporting. You can't rely on suspect information, anonymous information to actually convict a president. That would be a terrible precedent. I think we will see procedural uh, arguments along those lines because we're not going to have that, uh, that testimonial evidence. I, I think that's right. I mean, what I see here... Dan, is this this uh, march by the Republicans to start focusing on procedure, potential procedural attacks on the impeachment as a way of sidestepping the issue of whether or not Donald Trump was culpable for the attack? Because I don't think they want to say that Trump wasn't uh, because they think it's fairly apparent that he was. So, you know, today, Jonathan Turley uh, is speaking to the uh, Senate uh, GOP caucus at their lunch, uh, at their lunch meeting, and Turley, somebody who all you know takes all sorts of of questionable or spurious legal positions in order to benefit Republicans. I don't really take him seriously uh, as a legal thinker. I, maybe at one time people did, uh, but you know he's I think selling the notion right now that you can't impeach a former. Uh, official like a former president, which of course is contrary to uh, prior practice and would eviscerate the the power of Congress to remove the ability of of an official to run for office again. Um, but I think that sort of argument is appealing uh, right now to senators because it's a procedural argument. It's a way of saying I don't need to Republican senators can say I don't need to consider the evidence or consider the issue of whether or not Donald Trump actually did something wrong. I think that's exactly right. That is their best lifeline. And even in the precedent that where there was a trial after um, the individual had or had left office or resigned from office and. 1876 was Secretary Belknap, the Secretary of War. There were a number of people, he wasn't convicted in the Senate, and a number of the senators uh, explained their vote to say that they did not think it was appropriate to have this uh, trial. It's the easiest way out in a really, really tricky situation for Republican senators to rely on some vague notion of a constitutional argument. I agree with you. I don't think it wins, but I don't think they really care whether it is a winning argument in court because um, it, it just gives them cover to be able to skirt this very, very tricky situation that they're in, which is to essentially be able to vote against a conviction 
and which you know obviously would would is something that I think politically a lot of the Republican senators probably want to be able to do just so they don't get the ire of Trump and his base, but they also do not want to um, give any kind of a of a of a acquiescence or acceptance of Donald Trump's behavior. And so that's why clearly Turley and and what is, I agree with you, I just think of a wrong interpretation of the Constitution. It's actually just absurd on its face because even the way that the structure inherently is written, you have to convict before you disqualify. So let's just say we have the normal situation and then you get two thirds to convict the president is gone and then you vote to disqualify him in the future so under any circumstance whether he's voted out now later whenever it is he's not actually in that position when you're voting to disqualify him from the future and it would of course create perverse incentives such as to resign right before a vote if you see the writing on the wall that two-thirds are going to convict and then you can just say well i'm not in office anymore you can't disqualify me um, the, the, the plain reading of the Constitution is not, does not support this argument, but it's colorable and there's some appeal to it. And most people, you know, haven't looked into it and, and don't understand it that well. So it's an easy escape hatch for a lot of these Republican senators. Exactly. Um, I think that's exactly right. I agree with your analysis. You know, I, one one thing that we've talked a little bit about in relation to this trial is, you know, how much you focus on January 6th. And the very specific legal issues, which we've discussed on prior episodes of the podcast about, you know, whether there was imminent lawless action that was incited by Trump and what he knew. And, and you, you talked earlier in, in our discussion today about his knowledge and so forth, or whether you focus more on some of what he was doing prior to that uh, w- with whatever evidence you're going to use. To me, that's a strategic decision you make when you try a case in terms of how do you tell the story? Where do you start the story? Uh, what sort of conduct do you put into, uh, you know, into evidence to try to get a conviction on a particular charge? I, I imagine that that was even there was even more of that discussion and strategy that went into the trial that you that you were involved in the impeachment process that you were part of, because there was a lot of discussion about whether or not, for example, the stuff that was in the Mueller report, the obstruction of justice uh, conduct, should be included and some of Trump's other misdeeds should, you know, should be part of this or whether there should be singular focus on what he tried to do uh, with the Ukrainian government, uh, which, of course, is the focus of the impeachment charge. I'm wondering what you're able to tell us about the strategic decisions you made last time and what, you know, in terms of of what story to tell, what focus to have for that trial and whether or not you think you made you guys made the right choice in hindsight. Well, in, in some respects, it was a political decision not to go forward with um, with the Mueller obstruction as a separate article uh, in the sense that there were a number of, of House Democrats who were not in favor of that. So, you know, part of the rationale is that the Ukraine conduct had a, a groundswell of support that the Mueller obstruction did not. But the way that we structured the articles was to include the conduct underlying the obstruction of Mueller and even the, you know, cheating on the the uh, 2016 election. I, I say that, uh, you know, somewhat, um, you know, just in a in summary fashion. And but but certainly Donald Trump's efforts and understanding efforts to use Russians inter- Russia's interference in the 2016 election and the way that the the articles were written last time included kind of a pattern and practice um, concept that we are familiar with from law. And so there was the abuse of power article about Ukraine and there was the obstruction article. And in both situations, you know, we included as background his conduct uh, that was underlying the Mueller investigation in terms of the abuse of power was, um, his prior efforts, you know, not to speak out against Russia, to to constantly be in favor of Russia, which, of course, dovetailed with uh, Ukraine stuff, um, both in the sense that Ukraine was at war with Russia, but also that what he was trying to have Ukraine investigate was a completely bogus uh, Russia propaganda, essentially. 
So, um, the, and then with the obstruction in Congress, then of course we had the obstruction from the Mueller investigation. So there was uh, contemplated that we would want to include evidence of that. And we did include evidence of that. Um, and we did include some of the conduct, even though the article itself focused on it. The difference uh, here is that the the article is drafted, I think, relatively narrowly, although it does add in the Raffensperger stuff, that phone call mm-hmm. um, between Trump and the Georgia Secretary of State Raffensperger. But it really is the charge is focused on inciting an insurrection. The insurrection, though, um, was you know, fomented for months and was cultivated for months. And Donald Trump had a role in that insurrection. Um, And so even though the actual charge generally focuses on what happened on January 6th, it is part and parcel of the conduct that you would include what happened in the previous two months. So the conduct that I think we'll hear about uh, is going to both predate and postdate January 6th, uh, even though the charge itself really focuses on that makes sense. Um, I do think that perhaps the most powerful evidence that I've seen of incitement is is the the statements that were made during the course of the insurrection itself by perpetrators by insurrectionists, in which they said, you know, if it, which in which they said things that revealed the way in which they believed that Trump authorized and and really ordered or invited their actions. You know, Trump had said in his speech that he would be there with them at the Capitol or may, said words to that effect. And you can hear in video uh, insurrection is saying Trump is here with us. Trump's up there. You know, they thought that he was part of the crowd somewhere, that he was there with them or insurrection is saying to uh, Capitol Police and others that uh, we're here a bit, you know, we've been invited by your boss, you know, Donald Trump, or, you know, you know, they were acting essentially under his authorization. You know, how important do you think that evidence is? Uh, Is that something, do you think that potentially clips of those videos and things like that will be used at the uh, trial? Absolutely. Absolutely. And this is another difference between the Senate trial and a courtroom is that that evidence, um, you know, would it would be questionable. Uh, you could imagine scenarios where it might be admitted in court, um, but usually evidence like that is not admitted except for a select few crimes uh, that are charged. But it would that would probably not be admitted in in a court of law. But it will absolutely be a critical part of the House's presentation because if the defense is, I never intended this. And then you put up people talking who did it, who said, this is what the president told us to do. Then it really does neuter that defense pretty effectively. And, you know, this goes back a little bit to my organized crime prosecution experience where, you know, crime bosses don't say go kill someone um, because they're they speak in in code. And, you know, Michael Cohen was very very outspoken about how Donald Trump speaks in code so that everyone who knows him understands what he's trying to say. Well, that's exactly what would happen in the debate. You know, stand back and stand by to the Proud Boys was was perceived by the Proud Boys as a sort of exhortation to be ready to move into action when necessary. And so it is how people interpret what he's saying is I think more important than what the literal words were themselves. So mm-hmm. we will see a, a, a glut of those, those uh, parlor videos, you know, and, and not, I have no, I have no vested interest in ProPublica, but they have a exhaustive um, uh, database almost of those uh, videos from that day that, that really will be, I think relied upon very heavily by the house managers. Yeah. And I have I've watched many of them myself. Um, you know, we do have a, a question that leads me into a question from our listeners, um, uh, you know, asking about uh, a little bit about the that, that type of evidence. Obviously, once again, they're focused on this as if it's a, a traditional trial. Uh, Patty, do you have that question? Uh, in regards to, you know, as Renato 
you know, discuss, so many of us are watching these videos. So we all feel like sleuths and, and want to gather evidence of what should be used. So they want to know if those sworn statements uh, made by insurrectionists at the Capitol can be used, saying that they were out uh, following Trump's orders to storm the Capitol. Yeah, in other words, particularly, I think also maybe post post arrest statements or statements that were made to law enforcement as well, I think could also be part of that question. Yeah, look, I think all, there, there are no rules, you know, <laughs> um, no one is going to say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You cannot um, you can't possibly talk about that because that is hearsay. What you will hear is people relying on a concept of hearsay. We heard it all the time last time. And it's it was an incorrect the Republicans who were talking about this used the concept incorrectly. In fact, so much of the witness testimony would have been admissible evidence in a court of law, even though they said it's inadmissible hearsay. But we'll hear that again. I mm -hmm. think that's going to be a big part of the defense is that this is not sworn testimony. It's hearsay. We can't possibly convict someone on it. But it can absolutely be included. There's no judge to say, sorry, you have to take that out. Um, you know, the only I mean, we were we were a little bit concerned about this last time. It's just one anecdote. And and we sort of teed up an issue that we had, which was that the the president, as as you will recall, Renato, um, refused to turn over any documents to the House. Mm hmm. Yet, of course, the, the president and the White House were in possession of all of these documents. And we were concerned that during the trial that they would selectively pick out favorable documents to them that were in their possession that we had not seen to use in their defense, um, which would be kind of using their obstruction as, as both a shield and a sword. And we teed it up with uh, the president's lawyers and, and even through the Senate parliamentarian back to Chief Justice Roberts, because you can't unring a bell. And so we didn't want to make a big issue of it, but we wanted to flag the issue um, so that they didn't do that. And ultimately, you know, we were, we received assurances that they were not planning on doing that. Um, but that's really the only kind of evidentiary issue that you're going to have in the Senate trial. Everything else is fair game. How the senators weigh the evidence is also fair game. And some can give it a lot of credit and some can give it very little credit. But that's the nature of a jury, which also in a court of law would do the same thing. You know, oh, this is someone said this about this, about that person who said that, you know, if it's three steps removed, even if it's admissible. And there are many hearsay statements, as you know, that are admissible. Uh, they may not give it the same weight that they would give from, you know, some a recording or someone who's uh, t t direct, testifying directly about what they saw with their own eyes. I've tried a lot of cases, and I usually going into trial, you know, I look, I like to win. I'm a competitive person, and I think you're always trying to convince yourself that you're in the right, and you're also often you don't have to uh, convince yourself because you are, uh, but you're also, you know, trying to psych yourself up for that moment. You know, it must it, it must have been different, though, in the case of a Senate impeachment uh, trial, knowing the the odds that you were facing, knowing that it was pretty clear that the the jurors in this case were not going to be receptive to what you had to say, uh, even no matter how right this, how no matter how right your judgment was or the arguments you were making. Was that challenging? How was that to deal? How was that to deal with uh, the, the situation of of working on a project that you knew in the end, you know, was an uphill battle. It was challenging, but uh, you know, there were, there were a couple different ways of, that, that we, we dealt with it. First of all, um, we believed, and, and I still believe this to this day, but I think it was, I mean, I still believe that this will apply in this trial, but not as acutely as the last trial. But we believe that we were the public was as much of the jury as the senators were. And we were really focused on making the case to the American public so they understood what happened, why it was unconstitutional and an abuse of power, and why it was so important to remove the president. And one of the arguments that Adam Schiff in particular really harped on is if you don't convict him now, 
he will do something worse in the future. And that is exactly what has happened. Mm -hmm. So part of it is that we weren't focused as much on the senators, although, you know, we viewed it as an achievement to even get Mitt Romney uh, to vote for us. And, And frankly, I, as you know, it was principally responsible for the, the case to be made and less about the political argument to make. You know, I felt some gratification when you would hear Lamar Alexander and Ben Sass say, you know, we proved our case. We proved that he mm-hmm. did mm-hmm. what we said he did. Then they, you know, they excused their vote by saying, but it's up to, you know, the people to uh, make the decision as to how how severe that is in the next election. Then we, I don't know that they contemplated the fact that the president would try to steal that election, but that's <laughs> where we are now. Probably should have. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so, so that is one issue. But the other issue is, you know, this is as you pointed out uh, at the top of the, the podcast. This is an, a historical um, process, right? It does not happen very frequently, and so there was a significant part of um, trying to do this for the historical record. Um, because it is important to lay a marker down. It is important, and I think it will be important in the future for people to look back and to say, you know, Donald Trump was impeached twice because he abused the power of his office. And I think there's some deterrent value in that going forward. The next person who's prepared to do this uh, or has inklings along these authoritarian lines like Donald Trump may be a little bit more reluctant to do it because there's now precedent that you'll be impeached. The concern about acquitting him again is that there will also be precedent that he was not convicted uh, either time. Um, So, you know, I do think that there's a really important value in having this trial, even though he's gone and disqualifying from future office to set that precedent, to make it very clear that if you and anyone, Donald Trump or someone else in the future, tries to do this, that you will be swiftly removed from office. Um, that is important, I think, to just our fundamental democratic values and the way that the, our government is structured. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I think, as I said, as you're right, as I said up top, it's a historical moment. I think, the uh, you know, frankly, you should be very proud of the role that you had uh, in in American history. I mean, I think it is a it is a a a, a chapter uh, in American history, or at least a verse. Um, I I wonder now as you look back on it, because as you point out, he he did do it again, right? To to as Adam Schiff warned. Um, do you when looking back in hindsight, and this is something I often do when I look back at trials. Are there things that you would do have done differently now, knowing what you know today, not just from Trump's subsequent actions, but also how the senators were ended up reacting and so forth. Um, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to say that any particular thing, you know, would have, would have mattered if you had done anything differently. You know, I thought in the end I was, was pretty, I felt like we put our best foot forward um, were there little things, you know, very, very inside baseball, minor things that, you know, might have changed or or done a little differently or organized a little differently? Yeah, probably. I think that there were things that, you know, if I were to really go back and study it, I would have said, oh, well, it might have been better. I mean, you, you know, this was toward the tail end of about four or five months of just, you know, kind of working nonstop. Like it was we, we didn't have a ton of sleep. You you know, we were preparing for the Senate trial for, you know, from the day after uh, the House um, passed the articles of impeachment. And uh, it was a pretty, you know, grueling time. So I'm sure, you know, with a little more rest and a little more uh, hindsight, we could have done things, um, you know, a little bit uh, more more effectively. But, you know, broadly speaking, I, I think, and, and I know there's criticism, oh, we should have included more in in the both in the articles and in the case. And, and look, there, there are arguments to be made on both sides, right? And, and because, you know, I, I think, and this is, again, a big difference, and maybe this is one area where I could see doing some things a little differently. In a, in a trial where you're a criminal trial, where you're trying to convict a defendant, there's a lot of value in keeping it streamlined 
in keeping a particular story, you know, a, a particular narrative and focusing on, you know, the most powerful evidence and the most provable charge and not maybe including some extraneous stuff that um, might distract from that very powerful argument and powerful charge. That is the the tack that we took with impeachment as well, as you point out, is that we had we wanted to be on message. We wanted to be focused on it. You know, the American people don't have enough time in their busy daily lives to um, understand a very complex scheme with lots of different aspects of it. So we we did try to keep the message sort of on point and streamlined. But, you know, when you're talking about removing someone from the presidency, you know, you're not just talking about getting a conviction, even if it's not of all of the conduct, right? Because you really need to make the case that a conviction is to remove the person. There's, it's, it's very, it's all or nothing in a sense in a Senate trial, whereas mm-hmm. that's not the case in a criminal trial. So the argument that we could and should have included more of his conduct, sweep that in to paint a picture of a just completely lawless president that needs to be removed. I understand that argument a little bit. I still think that, you know, we, we did it the right way because I, I just, I think at the end, the conduct that was related to Ukraine, you know, was the most tangible, the most uh, understandable and, and the, certainly for the public messaging, um, the easiest to explain. And this is, I guess, where the different audiences we had diverged a little bit. I think that was the right decision for the public. I'm not sure it was the right decision if, for senators, if you were to have objective, impartial, you know, senators like Mitt Romney, who was just going to listen to the evidence and make the decision based on the evidence. That is not how a lot of the senators came into it. But let's assume you did. I could, I could see a John Bolton has criticized, you know, the House for doing this. I could see a case for why you would want to widen the lens and show all of the different things that Donald Trump did to abuse his power, you know, whether it's emoluments or obstruction or, you know, you could lump in so many different things that he did um, and paint this picture of essentially a lawless person who needed to be removed. I get that. I'm not sure that the public would understand that. And I think invariably politicians are moved by public opinion. So I'm not sure that that really would have been the right thing, but I certainly understand the argument. Yeah, I understand the argument as well. I do think it's a judgment call. I will say at the time, I argued pretty forcefully in a column that I thought you guys should focus on the Ukraine episode. And um, I thought that for the reasons you said, which is that you, you want to keep the story as simple as possible. And it was already complicated enough. There was all these Ukrainian names that people had to become familiar with. And there was it wasn't a, it wasn't as simple as a story that that uh, will be told at the second impeachment. Let's put it that way about an attack on the Capitol. Everyone can get their head around that very quickly. Uh, you know, you just see the images and so forth. So I I think you guys made the right call there. But I do think it it's something people will question and will write about years from now and discuss, you know, why weren't. All of these other things about Donald Trump's presidency, the subject of impeachment, and I think as is all every both of us know, and I think everyone listening to the podcast know, if we if every everything that Trump did that was potentially impeachable was the subject of an impeachment inquiry, the House would have been doing little else uh, during his presidency. Well, well, Dan, I got I got to tell you, I have really really enjoyed speaking to you about this subject. I've learned I've learned from you. I really appreciate as an American, thank you for your service uh, to our country. I really appreciate that, uh, what you did uh, in your role in in the first impeachment. And I appreciate you taking the time out to give us some insight into the upcoming impeachment trial. It was a pleasure to be with you, Renato, and uh, happy to happy to provide whatever insight I can. This is a, a momentous uh, time in, in American history. And I, and I do think that you know, we, we want to move on, but as as we know, as prosecutors, you know, if you let people off the hook, uh, it will happen again, and accountability matters. So, uh, hopefully, people are are focused on that aspect of things that we need to set the precedent of how our country should operate, and uh, we'll see what happens over the next few weeks. Amen to that. Well, thanks again, Dan.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. that newsmakers try to manipulate the audience. They want you to believe that they are the one holding the line and they'll use any trick they can to get you there. But don't let them fool you. Get unspun. I'm Amanda Sturgill. I've been a reporter, and today I teach future reporters to cut the spin and think critically about what newsmakers say. My podcast, Unspun, shows you how to know when you're being manipulated by the news. Learn to spot the tricks and how to make up your own mind about what's true. So if you're tired of being fooled by the news, subscribe to Unspun today. Unspun, because you deserve the truth.